WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Everyone knows how much it sucks to get a stomach ache. Whenever you eat something wrong or you just wake up one day and you feel really bad. Today we're here to talk to Jose Rodriguez about his research. Jose, can you please introduce yourself for us? Hi, yeah, my name is uh, Jose Rodriguez. I'm a DOPHD student here at Michigan State University, so I'm a part of the Physician Scientist Training Program. And for my PhD, it's in Microbiology and Molecular Genetics. And I'm in Dr. Manning Manning's lab where we study, where I particularly study Campylobacter dejuni. It's a foodborne pathogen. So it can be just, just like you said, give you that stomach bug that we we're talking about. Thanks for that introduction, Jose. What makes this pathogen so interesting to study compared to other foodborne pathogens? So Campylobacter dejuni, or C. dejuni we call it, is actually the number one cause of bacterial gastroenteritis in the developed world and here in the United States. And so we know of things we hear a lot in the news about E. coli or salmonella, which cause outbreaks of foodborne disease, but Campylobacter dejuni actually causes the greatest number of disease due to a bacterial pathogen. And so we're really interested in understanding what are some of the risk factors, what what do people do in their everyday to cause them to get this disease? And in particular, I study the antibiotic resistance of this bacteria. So difficult to treat Campylobacter dejuni strains in our lab. You had mentioned that C. jejuni has different bacterial strains. What does it mean that there are different strains? This is something that we study in, in the field of molecular epidemiology or infectious disease epidemiology. What we're looking at are different bacterial characteristics that we can sort of type these bacteria and, and these strains. So we can use genetic, genetic information or different phenotypes, so how these bacteria behave to try to identify subgroups that either cause more severe disease or are located in a certain location, or again, in, our, in this situation, are, in, are resistant to different antibiotics or treatments. And so in this way, we can sort of advise public health measures about what are the different diversity of this bacteria going on. And so it's really like looking at evolution and the diversity of the bacteria in the environment. You talked about a couple of different concepts there, including genetic info and phenotype. What is the relationship between those two concepts for a pathogen scientist like yourself? The bacteria can have different traits. That's what we describe as phenotypes. We look at different things in the lab to try to determine what these traits are and how they differ between different uh, bacterial strains. In this case, we're looking at the phenotype of antibiotic resistance. So how different drugs are able to actually kill the bacteria or not. So how these different strains of bacteria are able to survive in the presence of a drug is something that we would describe as a phenotype or a trait of that bacteria. So you're looking to see how this pathogen is affected by antibiotic resistance, but I would assume that you need to look at a variety of people. How do you collect your samples? Yeah, that's a great question. So our lab has collaborated with four different hospitals in Michigan 
to create what's called an active surveillance system. So we go out and actively look for these infections that are going on. And so when there is a case of campylobacteriosis or the disease caused by this bacteria, which is characteristic of abdominal pain, diarrhea, something that probably most of us have experienced, those bacterial isolates or strains of bacteria are actually sent to our lab. And so we're able to use not only the lab information, but also the information that was provided to us by these patients who had the disease. And so we're able to link bacterial traits to what's going on in people in real time here in Michigan. I think it's great that they have this service set up here in the state of Michigan, but why is it so important to study antibiotic-resistant strains of bacteria? So it's important to look at antibiotic resistance in bacterial strains for a couple of different reasons. I think the number one thing is to understand which drugs are able to be used in patients who need to be treated. In this particular case, it's important to know that this disease is self-limiting, which means it kind of goes away. If if those who've experienced like an acute diarrheal disease, we know we can hang out with this for a couple of days. But this uh, bacteria can also uh, cause a variety of different infections and can also cause greater disease in people who are immune compromised. And so in those cases where there's hospitalization, we do treat these with different antibiotics. And so knowing the frequency of strains that are out in, in the world that, that, can, that are resistant to drugs can, can advise doctors about uh, what drugs are able to be used in this infection when it comes to people. So I would say that it's probably the primary reason is to understand what treatments uh, to use for, for this infection. What samples are being collected from these patients from these four Michigan hospitals? There are so many different ways that we can collect samples from patients that could be with their blood, urine, saliva. What do you use particularly for your studies and how is it transported to your laboratory? So the collection was set up actually between 2010 to 2015. So these samples were uh, processed by the microbiology labs at the four different hospitals in Michigan. And so this, because this disease causes diarrhea, it's you, the bacteria is usually shed in stool. So these samples are stool samples that are then processed in the microbiology lab. So on uh, what's called an agar plate, it's essentially food for bacteria and they isolate the bacteria and then they send that to us in sort of like a frozen down tube that will keep the bacteria alive once we propagate that again or once we start to grow it up again in our lab. And so in that way, we know that these cases were what we call culture confirmed. So that means that a microbiologist actually took the stool and were able to grow up this specific organism from individuals who displayed those symptoms of diarrhea, abdominal pain, etc. Since there are so many types of antibiotics that doctors can prescribe to help with different ailments that people go through, are you interested in looking at one particular antibiotic or are you studying multiple antibiotics in regards to this disease? So the method that we use actually enables us to study nine different antibiotics. So we have tested over 200 different bacterial strains, which equates to an infection in person in Michigan. 
with nine different antibiotics. And the, the two that are really important are actually a large group of antibiotics called a class. So fluoroquinolones, which is just a fancy name for the drug. And some people might be familiar with the term Cipro or ciprofloxacin is the drug that's really important. It's used to treat Campylobacter dejuni. And then also macrolides, another drug class, and then uh, azithromycin or a Z-pack. Some people have gotten a Z-pack before from their doctor. And that's another drug that we study that's part of this study. It's great to know that you're studying nine different types of antibiotics. How are you able to measure or study antibiotic resistance? So we use a method called microbroth dilution, which is just a fancy way of saying uh, putting the antibiotic or the drug in the presence of the bacterial strains. And so we use varying different concentrations of the drug and see which bacterial strains are able to grow in, in the presence of the different concentrations and the different types of antibiotics. And so in that way, we can see which bacterial strains are resistant to the drugs. It's clear throughout the course of this interview that the research you are performing is going to have lasting impacts on the public health system here in the state of Michigan. Out of all the antibiotics that you've studied, which one did you find had the least amount of effect on a bacteria? One of the important outcomes that that we identified and other groups have identified as well is that fluoroquinolones or that class of antibiotics, there's increasing resistance to that class of antibiotics in Campylobacter jejuni, which is the first line treatment for C. jejuni infections. And so here we identified that 25% of the bacterial strains that we tested were resistant to this class of antibiotics. So that's important to think about when we look at severe outcomes in terms of infections by this bacteria in Michigan. As we had mentioned earlier, you're receiving samples from four different hospitals in Michigan. Do you receive any information about the patients whenever you receive these samples? And if you do receive information, do you use it? Yes. So the data that we received was part through the Michigan Disease Surveillance System. So patients were interviewed about their recent contacts, what symptoms they had, whether or not they were hospitalized due to this infection, whether they traveled recently in the past month, if they had domestic or international travel. And it turns out that some of these variables are really important. And so what we do is we try to understand what are the risk factors or behaviors that people take that might uh, increase their risk for antibiotic-resistant infections of Campylobacter dejuni. So for one example of a result, we identified that tetracycline resistance was related to whether or not individuals may have had contact with livestock. That makes you think about whenever I go to a restaurant, usually at the bottom of a menu, there's always a disclaimer that tells people that they should be aware that there is a possibility of catching a foodborne pathogen whenever consuming raw or uncooked meat. What are other routes that this disease could enter a person's system? We know that some of the risk factors for disease and how this is, how people are coming in contact with this bacteria. Number one is through undercooked poultry or chicken. So the bacteria actually is, is part of the normal digestive system of 
chicken. And so during food processing, it can become contaminated. So that's the number one cause or number one risk factor for Campylobacter jejuni in the United States. Other ways are through cattle. Cattle are and livestock are the second um, major source. And there's uh, major outbreaks of Campylobacter jejuni associated with unpasteurized milk. So it's really important to consume only pasteurized milk and, and, and also contact with those animals. There's also been cases of contaminated water sources like well water. And yeah, so our animals at home, so domestic animals can also be affected by this disease and then tra transmit that disease to, to their owners. I think it's really important that you highlighted the fact that C. jejuni is transmitted in so many different ways. What direction do you see this research going in? And are there things that we can do to help prevent the spread of C. jejuni? In terms of prevention, I think it's important to always cook your meat well and also when having in contact with, with animals, just keeping uh, your hands clean, washing your hands and staying away from things like animal stool or when you're picking up your uh, stool from your dog, just washing your hands. So just basic hygiene and in, in ensuring that you're cooking your chicken well. In terms of my research, I really am now looking at different pieces of DNA of, of the bacteria to see if we can sort of subtype the different strains and look at risk, other, other risk factors for disease. And so what I mean by that is a lot of epidemiologists try to identify different bacterial characteristics or traits that, that might uh, explain why we see so many different outcomes in patients. And so if we're able to identify DNA that's related to severe outcomes, maybe we can provide that evidence to prevent severe outcomes in patients. To move away from the research and to talk more a little bit about yourself, are there any other activities that you're involved with in the medical field? Yeah, so I'm part of the executive council for the American Physician Scientists Association, which uh, is a trainee-led organization for trainees that are in translational research, in particular physicians, so MD, DO students who are uh, looking to pursue a career as a physician scientist, someone who does medicine and also does research. So as with, with APSA, I'm the chair of our diversity ad hoc committee and also serve on the committee for finance. So at, in the diversity ad hoc committee, we're really focused on increasing uh, diversity within trainees and our workforce as physician scientists. And so this past summer we held uh, what's called the Physician Scientist Trainee Diversity Summit. So we were really looking at um, trying to identify areas that we as a community can be better to include and reach out to diverse communities, whether that uh, be race, uh, ethnicity, females, LGBTQ status, folks from rural areas, and people with disabilities. Th those are really things that I'm focused on is trying to increase diversity within our workforce. I think it's wonderful that you're doing that. We really do need to increase the diversity, not only in your workforce, but, but just everywhere in general. 
What motivated you to become involved with this? So I'm Portuguese and Cape Verdean. So I have, I'm African American and a first generation college student, first generation American. So it was really important to me to identify mentors who had similar background as me. And that was really challenging. And then this opportunity came up to be involved with the diversity ad hoc community and a committee. And I realized that there was such a need especially within our field of medicine, and in particular, this subgroup of doctors who are doing research. There is a need to focus on underrepresented groups in our community, and I thought that was something that I was really passionate about. I think anybody listening to this interview will be able to fully understand and hear the passion from your voice that about how you talk about these different topics in regards to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jose, and I really appreciate it. The Sci-Files is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Daniel Puentes for Impact 89FM. Thank you to our news director, Sophie Sagan, program director, Amber Konutsky, station manager, Joe Dandron, and general manager, Jeremy Whiting. This show, as well as the entire Impact 89FM podcast lineup, can be found online at impact89fm.org or by searching for The Sci-Files on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on the Sci-Files, or if you have any questions, you can contact us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. See you next week on Sci-Files. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth is in the science.